the quantum mechanics. Yes, we're the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. And we do normally have a little bit of chat at the start, Ben, but I'm thinking we've got a great guest today. So I think we should get kind of straight into it, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. He's on the line from America. We're really glad to have him. A couple of weeks ago, I think maybe three weeks ago, we spoke about how we were going to get somebody on to talk about shadow beings. And because we've also... The, the hat man keeps coming up. And Mike Rick Secker is kind of, I would say, a global authority on shadow beings and the hat man. And he literally wrote the book on it, right? <laughs> he, he literally wrote the book on it. So, yeah, without further ado... Let's get connected and um, bring him up. We are joined by Mike Rinsecker. Welcome, Mike. Ben and I have been going through a number of your videos and books. Maybe we could start with your book, The Ghost Story in Case Files. Mike, can you explain what a ghost story is? Because it's such a great name. Yeah, I coined that term some years ago because a lot of the work that I was doing at the time was uh, the, the team that I was a part of uh, a good 10 years ago. Uh, I was the historian for the group, but, you know, as the historian for a paranormal investigative team, you know, we're, we're investigating ghosts and the places in which they haunt. So, you know, you just kind of combine those two words, ghost historian, you come up with ghost, ghost historian. So in that book, The Ghost Story in Case Files, you detail out the case, where you are, the reason for your investigation and everything that happens to you. How did that writing process come about? Yeah, it's definitely a different uh, type of writing style because other other books like it that I've written before, like Campfire Tales Midwest, you know, it's heavy storytelling, but just straight, um, you know, you got dialogue and you've got the exposition and, and all that sort of stuff. And with with this book, it's um, it's like you just, you know, opened my file cabinet, took out a one of the files on a case and started reading through the the case notes. You got journal entries, you got EVP transcripts. Um, so it's, it's a very different writing style, but you know, it, it really depicts how we would catalog those cases where I was, I was very meticulous with my notes, still am, <laughs> I'm saying it was, but I'm not with that, that group working anymore. I've kind of moved on to other things. Um, but I mean, that's what we would do. You know, we'd, we'd walk into an investigation. I'd note the time. This is when we're interviewing somebody, um, you know, the, the, the EVPs and the, the transcripts off of those, um, you know, it's, it's very similar in that book to the way that I would try to catalog a case. You know, here are the facts. You make of it what you will. I have my own ideas and assessments, but um, you know, when you're dealing with the you know the paranormal and the supernatural, um, it's it's really kind of subjective to you know the the person that's either uh, you know observing and is there in the room at the time, or the person that's coming back later, and either through some sort of you know whether it's a, a video or a television show uh, or reading through a book, you know, they start formulating their own ideas. So I allow the reader to make their own conclusions. You experienced some supernatural phenomena for a very young age, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I had, of course, no idea at that time, at that age, that I was, this was going to be something I was going to pursue. Uh, I, as a writer, uh, I, I have, that is something I've always wanted to pursue ever since I was about seven years old. Uh, but as far as the paranormal aspect, yeah, I had experiences when I was very young, about eight years old. 
woke up in the middle of the night and there was this tall, dark shadow standing in the corner of my bedroom. Uh, you know, I have no idea about shadow beings, shadow people, anything like that at that time. I thought there was an intruder in the house. You know, somebody had broken in, had gotten into my bedroom and was about to kill me. You know, it's about what you think at that age. Good Lord. Yeah. So, uh, so I was very scared. Fortunately, I'm still alive to tell the tale, which is great. Um, but it did get physical with me. It approached my bed and I'm trying to scream. My mouth opened up. Uh, nothing's coming out because I'm just too terrified. Comes up to the bed, leans over, and I'm staring into this blank black face. There's no eyes, no nose, no mouth, nothing. And it takes me by the wrists, crosses my arms across my body, and then runs off down the hall. And of all places, into a closet. Don't know why it went in there. It's the, the, the portal in the closet or something. I don't know. But I found my voice, found my legs, ran off screaming in my parents' bedroom. They're trying to console me, calm me down, and uh, trying to tell me that I just had a bad dream. But you know, I was awake for this whole experience. I was not sleeping at all. That was the first major experience. Um, the next house that we moved into, this was about five years later. I would never call that, that first house like a haunted house. This was really like a one-off thing that happened there. But the next house that we moved into had something more recurring going on where it was a uh, you know, shadowy figure different than the one that I had seen at the other house. This one was more translucent in nature. It did not get physical. It would just kind of stand in the doorway. When you look at it, it would run off. And um, that activity lasted for about you know, three or four months in that particular house. I'm seeing more things. Even my mother uh, saw this one. But the moment that I knew I was going to get involved uh, in this type of research and really I didn't even know it was a field back then but it was a moment where I knew okay I'm really interested in this uh, about 15 years old my friend David and I were at our friend Lori's house it's a uh, it's an older house downtown the old uh, uh, the, the town that we live in and um, we're just teenagers shooting the breeze we're you know talking teen drama stuff like that in her living room and all of a sudden Lori says I think my house is haunted David and I are like, oh, this is interesting. Well, <laughs> how do you think the house is on it? So she's telling us about some things that happen around the house. There's an old family cemetery in the backyard, these sorts of things. Her main concern, though, is that her bedroom, uh, there's a, there was a wall in her bedroom where anytime that she would tack something up on the wall, it would always fall down, posters and things like that. You know, it would be like a day, a week, whatever, later, maybe even an hour, and it would always just fall down. So we're going to check it out. We're going to go investigate, even though we have no idea that's what we're doing. So we go up there, we're taking a look at the wall, we're taking a look around her bedroom. Lori's telling us some more stories. And um, I didn't realize this about David at the time, but he was an extremely sensitive guy. He put his hand flat to the wall like that. And he turned this bright, bright red and started sweating profusely. And I'm looking at David like, oh my gosh, what's going on with my friend? I'd never seen anything like this before. So he starts going like wall to wall in the house to, to see if there are any more hot spots like this. And that was the moment right there that I knew that, okay, I was blown away. This was absolutely fascinating. And that was going to somehow be involved in this research for the rest of my life. Even though back then I didn't know it was a field of research, but it was something and I was definitely interested. I wanted to go back to that first moment you talked about with the figure. And I was really interested in what you were saying about it putting your your arms across your chest like that. I mean, you, maybe you had a thought at the time what was going on. Because you have more experience in 
this now. Do you have any conclusion of what it was trying to do? Yeah. So at the time, of course, um, being very frightened, being very young, I thought the thing was attacking me. Um, over the years, talking with other people as I you know, got involved more in the paranormal field, uh, some people thought that, you know, maybe this thing uh, thought that I was actually dead and it was you know, putting me into a burial post, like something out of ancient Egypt with the crook and the flail. And, you know, I thought that was an interesting idea for a while. But last year, it was almost a year ago now, um, I had a, uh, a hypnotic uh, regression. So we did a past life regression, and then we looked at some different moments in my life that I want to take a look at. And this was one of them. I want to take a look at this moment, see what in the world happened. And what was interesting about that uh, hypnosis session uh, in, in the woman uh, that performed it, uh, Ariana Corsino, very, very good. I highly recommend her. Um, it was interesting because I actually got a look of the situation from the point of view of the shadow entity, which I thought was was fascinating. So it was like I was looking down on my little seven, year, eight-year-old self uh, from the corner of that bedroom, from the shadow person's perspective. And... I also got a sense of emotion from this from this shadow. It apparently did not realize at first that I could see it. It did not intend to be seen. But once I was trying to scream and all that, my little mouth was opening up, um, it realized that it had frightened me, that I could actually see it. And it felt bad for that. Uh, so what it was doing when it approached my bed and crossed my arms... Uh, different angle that I got on this event was that as it crossed my arms, it actually patted me uh, on the wrist too, to kind of like console me. So it was like a, almost kind of like a self hug thing kind of patted me and then it ran off out of there, you know, so that it would stop frightening me, uh, which I thought was uh, you know, really, really fascinating to get that kind of perspective on it. Um, Ariana asked some interesting follow-up questions like, you know, you know, who are you? What are you from? That sort of thing. And, you know, some of the responses were, were interesting. So it was saying that it was from another space. Follow-up question, you mean another dimension? And the response to that was, well, you might call it a dimension, but really it's another space, which still is kind of cryptic, uh, but very, very interesting. Now, this is what I was going to ask you, because at the, that young age of eight, and and we've spoken about this on the show before, probably your only connection with the paranormal is maybe scooby-doo or <laughs> watching ghostbusters something like that and then there's a conventional wisdom that ghosts are people coming back from the dead they are previously alive beings who for some reason are reanimated but it feels like from the outset you felt this was something different yeah, it was definitely something different. Uh, it certainly wasn't anything off of Scooby-Doo. Uh, and yeah, at that age, I was certainly watching Scooby-Doo. That was before Ghostbusters, though. Uh, so, yeah, I, I never thought this thing was was a ghost. Um, I wasn't sure what it was. I mean, initially, I thought it was an intruder. Um, and, and I thought that for a while until I started getting a little bit older and reexamining it and realizing that, no, this was this was something else. This This wasn't a person. And this experience, I guess, so for listeners, if you're not familiar, Mike has done extensive research into shadow beings. So is that the incident which ignited your passion to discover 
what on earth these things really are. Yeah, um, I certainly had an interest at that time. Um, yeah, I, I did write little ghost stories at 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 age of seven. It was uh, mystery, some ghost stories, and actually historic fiction. If you can imagine that from a seven year old, so <laughs> that sounds like it might be quite precocious, but probably brilliant. Right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was. I was writing little stories about the American Revolution with George Washington and a lieutenant kind of having this conversation back and forth and describing some of the different battles with stick figures for art. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> that sounds brilliant. <laughs> it really does. My mother I hung on to those stories, and so I actually have them. They're great. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was more so that, um, you know, that moment in, in high school where we were at Lori's house, that that's, that's the one that really kind of set me down the path. But even before that, you know, I had um, – uh, you know, I'd read the book, The Amityville Horror, and, you know, people can debate whether it was true or not. But, you know, upon reading that book, it was I wanted to go to the house and discover, OK, what really happened there. My girlfriend at the time, when I was discussing this with her, she thought it was absolutely nuts. She's like, you, why don't you run from something like that? I'm like, I want to know what happened. Um, I was reading Hans Holzer. Uh, so, you know, his books were absolutely fascinating. So, you know, as a as an adolescent. You know, I did have an interest in this. And then that moment there when I was 15 at Lori's house, that was the moment that I knew that this is going to be a thing I do. So it sounds almost like from that early age, you're approaching this with much more of an intellectual vigor than most people would. Probably most people would sort of talk about it in, you know, darkened rooms and scare their friends. But it feels like you're beginning to get the basis of like approaching this scientifically yeah i mean there's there's a distinct separation there so um you know when we were young i I think we all would try to you know spook our siblings or friends or whatever so like at my grandparents house uh myself and the kid next door would would set up different things around my my grandparents house to try to spook my uh my sister and my cousins i think we all do that sort of thing um and, and and even with that, I had a nice like background for it. I like pulled open encyclopedias to try to find a story to go along with it with, as to why the, the house would actually be haunted. And I'm doing this as like a, I don't know, like an 11 year old or something. I think that's quite unusual, but also massively interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it heightened the experience for, for my sister and cousin. Sure. So, but what was funny about that is once, once it was out that we were tricking them, the whole family got into it, uh, leave, like leaving little notes around the house, almost came, became like a scavenger hunt sort of thing. So it was really fun. We still talk about that to this day. Um, but that, that was um, distinct and separate from, okay, there's phenomenon going on over here. Let's actually try to figure out what it is that's happening. And that's where, you know, start getting into more serious research rather than just having fun with it. So at this point, if we go back to that time when you're in that house, you are late teens, something like that. Is that about right? Yeah, I was like 15. 15. Okay, mid-teens. Okay. And to go into the occupation of being a ghost researcher, it isn't renowned for bringing a lot of income. So did you have to sort of think about this in line with also doing something that's going to pay the bills. Did, did you start an, another career at the same time? 
Yeah. I mean, at 15 years old, I wasn't thinking at all that this would be like an occupation sort of thing. Ghostbusters was out by then, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I never, I mean, Ghostbusters was just funny. I never really took that as seriously as an occupation. Now reading Hans Holzer, it's like, okay, you know, I could certainly be a writer, you know, of that type of material. I was already, uh, you know, writing, uh, stories. I'd started several, you know, like fiction books. I was writing song lyrics. So that was, writing was always there. So in, in my mind, writing as a profession, yes. Um, I was also in a lot of business classes. You know, my mind said, well, you know, if I do want to make money, I better know what to do with it. So um, I was the, I won whatever award it was for the high school as a senior for the business department. And um, in computers, um, you know, the personal computer had come out, uh, you know, late seventies, early eighties. My father kind of had the foresight to bring a Commodore computer into our house. And so, you know, I was starting to get a background in computing and that's what I went into as a profession. I enlisted in the United States Air Force, uh, went into their computer program, uh, was in the Air Force for six years, uh, learning some skills. And I got out uh, of the Air Force in the middle of the big tech boom late 1990s. And, you know, my computer uh, career took off from there. In the background, I'm still writing, starting to do a lot more um, research in the uh, in the area of supernatural paranormal phenomena, because we finally had something, you know, called the World Wide Web. And, uh, you know, people were putting information out there. But what was great was, um, you know, you're finding these online forums or places like Yahoo groups, and you're finding, you know, people that have also had these experiences and being able to, you know, bounce these things off of them. Because you know, when I had that experience at 15, I was in a small town. Um, you know, the, the library didn't really have a lot on that type of phenomenon. And so it was, okay, you know, I have Hans Holzer book that uh, my mother actually uh, bought for me before we moved out of Massachusetts. So that came from another state. They had the Amityville horror and that was really about it. So when I was finally able to start connecting with people on the web, that's really when my research uh, in this phenomenon started to take off. So just to go back to that, those six years when you're in military engagement, obviously your interest in the paranormal is still highly active there was it difficult for you to talk about that to colleagues did you feel like it might diminish your standing or did you find it an accepting environment oh well you have to be careful and this is i was actually interviewed for this for a television show um yesterday i was on buffalo new york and uh, they wanted to know about uh some significant experiences that i had uh, up in alaska and i cover it in my book alaska's mysterious triangle on the the chapter on on shadow beans where uh, in the basement of the Alaska command building that we would see shadows walking about down there. Uh, sometimes the, especially in the back office area, it would get like really dark, really heavy. Uh, we would see these things back there um, or darting into another room behind the computer center that had like these old printers. We just see the shadow start in there. The thing was though, is even though, you know, there's several of us that saw these things and we would kind of whisper, hey, did you see this? And there was like this legend going around that the building had once been a hospital. We were in the morgue and, and that sort of stuff. You couldn't talk about it too loudly or to the wrong person because you would then find yourself down at mental health. And you find yourself down there for a significant period of time or if they deem that, you know, why you're down there is not good, you'll have your security 
clearance pulled. And with my position, you have your security clearance pulled. Um, you're, you're really almost out of a job. You'll be doing some menial labor task or just, you know, doing ad administrative stuff in the orderly room. And, you know, you're, you're not getting trained in what you're there for. So you did have to be careful. We, we've talked about it on the podcast quite a lot about how a lot of paranormal activity, there seems to be, and there's no direct connection I can make, but there seems to be a lot of activity around military, around military personnel, or at least people who've gone into the military. Do you think, have you any thoughts on why that is, or is that just an assumption that we're making? Um you know, it's interesting because, yeah, a lot of military personnel do experience things. Others are, I mean, others don't. But um, I, I think it might be one of those where you know, you, you're kind of trained to have a more heightened sense of awareness and to, uh, you know, get a good sense of your surroundings. You know, other people in the military are in positions to, you know, experience UFO or ET activity. Um, I wasn't per se, although... Years later, when I was at NSA, I kind of saw some stuff in the background. Um, nothing like really specific, but just the fact that they were, you know, kind of involved in that that sort of research. So um, you have other members that get involved in those type of programs, or even ones that where they're dealing with um, you know, like remote viewing, you know, those types of programs within yeah. the military as well. Yeah, we've 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 interviewed a few people like Paul H. Smith and people who are involved in the remote viewing program which I think that kind of sparked that thought when you talked about it actually I, I'm really interested in what you said that it I like that idea of it it's almost because of your training you have a kind of a heightened sense of what's going on which does seem to lend into what you were talking about earlier this being that you first encountered being from a different space it's almost we've talked about it on the podcast a lot we boringly go on about what does an ant think when it's in a Porsche? You know, what is this environment? I've got no understanding of it. And that are people who are trained in that way or at least heightened in that way, do they see things that other people just don't see? Yeah, I mean, because it's been with me since, you know, I was young, um, I, I think my senses were already heightened. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, they do train you in the military to be you know, more aware of your, of your surroundings. Um, kind of, you know, and I was a boy scout too. So you're, you're kind of taught the same thing there. Right. So when, when you left, um, the military, you, it sounds like you took a conscious decision that you would dedicate some time to really pursuing this, but it feels like it's almost, is it more than a passion? It's almost something that you're driven to do because of that early experience. You, if uh, I get this sense when you're writing the book, you are you're searching for an answer. You're searching for a breakthrough. Is that fair? Um, yeah, I mean, if we are able to get some more answers, and um, you know, that would be wonderful. And it, it's funny because as you try to find those answers, you end up with a bunch more questions. You might get one answer over here, but that opens up a whole can of worms. You know, part of it is, you know, in, in sharing these experiences, you know, you're helping people realize that, that they're not alone, that, you know, other people who have had these experiences and find you through you know, just searching, Hey, you know, I, I, uh, you know, saw a shadow person, what do I do? And then they find you. And then you're at least helping them realize you're not alone in this. 
other people have, have had these experiences too. And I think that's, that's a big thing to get that acknowledgement that, okay, I'm not crazy. You have that sort of affirmation. That's, that, to me, that's a big deal. Um, there's also uh, one of the other things that drives me is that humanity has this recurring cycle of um, you know, we get some sort of knowledge and then we forget and we kind of go through uh, these cycles of making the same mistakes over and over and over again as a species. And uh, one of the things that I'm trying to do is with the knowledge that I acquired, pass it on to the next generation. And you know, still their responsibility to pick up the mantle and go with it. And so that hopefully this knowledge doesn't get lost, but I'm at least trying to do my part to, to help propel that knowledge forward. Now, you've, uh, I was going to say, let's dive into shadow beings. But just before we do, what you just said there made me, made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Because when you say about passing on knowledge, I wonder whether you feel like we have lost some knowledge through technical innovation, through... I suppose, religious ideologies, nationalistic ideologies. Do you think we as a species knew more about what these entities were in a previous time? Do you think we've that there's some knowledge which we now have to strive to get back? Well, absolutely. I mean, you can just, I mean, we see it in a lot of our ancient structures, you know, like the pyramids or, um, you know, Baalbek or something like that, where, you know, huge megalithic blocks that we couldn't even pick up today with our, with our largest cranes. You know, how in the world did they move these things? Um, you know, we guess at what they did, but we can't replicate it today. So there's certainly knowledge that has been lost to time. And, you know, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, and, and we do see, uh, you, you mentioned religion. We know that they you know, stamped out a, a lot of different ideologies where every once in a while we'll find some uh, some texts that were hidden that give us a little bit of enlightenment as to, you know, what they believed. You know, we know the great library of Alexandria was destroyed. How much knowledge did we lose there? Um, you know, even, you know, you look at the Egyptian hieroglyphs today. Um, it was really just recently within the last 150, not quite 200 years that uh, we rediscovered how to read those, you know? So in, what was it? Uh, just around 300 AD, I think it was when the last priest that knew how to read those had passed away. So you had this large gap of time where that knowledge had been lost. Uh, and fortunately we were able to, to figure it out and rediscover it, but this happens quite often. There is so much in our world that we just really don't even realize is out there. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, I completely agree. And I think the more, the more that we've to spoken to people and read books on this podcast, the more I feel like there's a there's a significant part of the um, the culture of human beings which has been completely. Uh, decimated is the wrong word because that just means one in ten. But it's been it's been completely destroyed and reinvented, and we think about things in the wrong way. And I guess that is my rather awkward way to say, look, I really want to get onto the shadow beings because they're something that really interests me. And and after having 
watched some of your videos, read some of your articles, read some of the things from your book. Shadow beings even come up quite a lot in um, the Ghost Story and Case Files. The, I guess if you if you come at shadow beings from a completely um, blank canvas, if you haven't, if you're not steeped in the law, could you just explain how they differ from? the ghosts and the poltergeist, which might be more familiar to people. What is it that characterizes a shadow being? Well, I mean, this is something that's going to be dark and shadowy in nature that has a, um, almost kind of a black type of form to it. And it, it could be completely solid in nature, um, kind of like what we would call the humanoid being, or it could be uh, when we talk about you know, the black mists or wisps uh, or something like that is more vaporous in form. It looks like a black cloud. So these are forms that have a, a uh, darker nature to them as far as color goes, rather than like a ghost or an apparition, which looks more white in nature. And so they don't, d no, okay. So they don't always have to be humanoid. They can, they can take any sort of shape, but that presumably they're either humanoid or misty they don't take on animal shapes or anything like that you hear about shadow animals i do have a, a chapter uh in my book a walk in the shadows on shadow animals and for that i mean part of it's written by me and then i had half the chip chapter called to my good friend rob gutcher who does a lot of work with uh with spirit communication with pets because he, he's had a lot of experience with uh with shadow pets so yeah they can take on the form of a uh, of an animal as well and in your mind, where do they sit? If if we and and you might completely disagree with this, if we assume that um, ghosts are either, uh, I guess, stone tape theory, so it is part of the environment replaying something that happened before, so there is no interaction with them. There also appear to be ghosts that are corporeal, either human or animal, which do interact and they might give you messages or whatever. What is it that shadow beings do do they do they talk to people do they impart messages or are they a little bit more ephemeral all of the above um that <laughs> 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 kind of really depends on the particular shadow and their agenda um you know some of these shadows that that we experience are i mean they're just a human spirit that can't fully manifest as an apparition so they come off as a shadow and so you know some of these might just be somebody's grandmother or aunt Jane or, or what have you. Um, you know, a lot of them are watching and observing. That's, that's the way they get reported a lot, you know, standing in the corner of a room at the edge of a bed down the hall, um, and watching, observing, studying humanity. Um, you know, some are, some may be benevolent in nature. We, we've seen stories of that, of, you know, helping out in medical situations or another one, somebody's about to fall down the stairs and they reach out and grab them so they don't fall. Uh, and then of course you have your, you know, your, nefarious ones that are uh that are up to no good uh so it's um it, it's really depends on the particular shadow and their agenda now that's it's very interesting you say that so in your i wasn't gonna i was gonna say in your mind but that's unfair in uh your research you have come to believe that these are previously human or animal spirits that are coming back but they're just not fully manifesting some not okay. all um you know some are some are extraterrestrials oh okay some are interdimensional beings some are thought forms that have manifested um 
Some may be astral projections. I, I think uh, some may even be time slips. So it, again, it's kind of dependent on the particular shadow, and you kind of have to, you know, get you know put your research into uh, you know that particular entity and kind of examine the situation to figure out what it is we're actually dealing with here. I, I'm also fascinated about the connection between shadow people and sleep paralysis. Are you? Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have an entire section of my book, Walk in the Shadows, on, on sleep paralysis, because uh, that's something that you know people, of course, commonly uh, report that uh, you know they they wake up in the middle of the night, they're paralyzed, and they see the the shadow entities. I've I've had that myself. So yeah, so they think the shadow entity is paralyzing them, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, you know, I think it's two different phenomena happening at the same time because sleep paralysis is a real biological phenomenon. Uh, people experience that. Um, all the time without, you know, the, the shadow beings. People also experience the shadow beings without having the sleep paralysis. Um, yeah, and, and that's actually more common. <laughs> you know, people will see shadows walking down the hall while they're, you know, awake and walking around. Um, you know, the, the one shadow experience that I had that was actually sleep related, and I've had tons of different shadow experiences, was that first one when I was a child, but I wasn't paralyzed because mm. uh, my, my mouth opened up, my arms moved, I could turn my head to watch it run down the hall. Um, so what I think is, is happening here um, is, is the medical community will, will tell us that the, um, the whole shadow person phenomena part of it is just, you know, we're waking up, we have sleep paralysis because it's a real biological phenomenon. And the shadow person is a hallucination out of our dreams. Uh, but we dream about all kinds of different things. Uh, you know, and, and first of all, like I said, we, we experience the shadow person phenomenon all different times of day, night, in all kinds of different situations. Um, but we also dream about all kinds of different things as well. We don't just dream about people. You know, we might have, um, you know, bushes and trees in our dreams. We might have airplanes flying overhead, maybe a motorcycle in our dream, these sorts of things. But people don't report seeing a shadowy motorcycle driving through their room or there's a shadowy tree that's suddenly it's it's a person mm -hmm. that's standing there um so here's what i think is going on and people who have had small children can can relate to this that uh you know usually child wakes up in the middle of the night they walk into your room because you know they had a bad dream need drink of water use the bathroom they'll tap you on the shoulder shake you awake and you know you go take care of it but sometimes they would just come to the edge of the bed and stand there and stare. And my, my youngest son, Cameron, was notorious for this, where all of a sudden I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm like, oh my gosh, Cameron. And he's just standing there staring at me like, what are you doing? And he'd tell me, oh, I had a bad dream or you know, I need to use the bathroom. Okay, well, that's fine. Let's go take care of it. But the question then becomes, what woke me up if he didn't tap me on the shoulder or shake me awake? I felt his presence. So we each have a toroidal field of energy that surrounds us that extends out several feet. The Heart Math Institute has done a lot of great research on this. And what's happening is uh, when his energy, his uh, toroidal field of energy enters into mine, I'm able to feel that. I'm able to feel his presence. Why? You, know, you could have your back to the door in a room. Don't hear a person walk into the room, but yet all of a sudden you sense somebody's in the room with me. You turn around, sure enough, there's somebody. Um, so these entities also have their own energy that's emanating from them as well. So what I think is happening is we're asleep. We have that 
field of energy around us. They appear in the room, their energy intersects with ours. And we feel that presence. We feel that somebody's in the room. That's what wakes us up. We wake up, we see this dark figure in the room. Most people usually think intruder first, not shadow person. It's usually an intruder type of thing. Um, the adrenaline starts to race. We're paralyzed. You know, not all the time, but sleep paralysis being a real biological phenomenon, that can happen. So we wake up, we might have the sleep paralysis going on. Somebody's in the room, the adrenaline's rushing and it just becomes this, uh, this tumbling down the rabbit hole of all these different emotions and things we start thinking because these two different phenomena happen to be happening at the same time. I, I find that really fascinating because certainly my experience afterwards, I rationalized it in that biological sense of, yeah, I just had a misfiring in my brain and I was hallucinating. But it is that bit that bothered me is like, the only bit that bothers me is I seem to have seen what everybody else has seen. And I still can't shake that. And I'm not saying it was definitely a paranormal experience for me. I still, maybe there's a part of me that wants to think it was just a biological one. But, you know, it has bothered me ever since it, that ever happened. It's like, why did I see this figure in the corner of the room? <laughs> a dark face with a hood and you know, and jumping on my chest as well, which is another thing that often. Comes. Oh, okay. So you had it like full blown old hag syndrome with yeah, yeah. jumping on your chest. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But um, no, I think that's really interesting. I, I like that concept of the, almost the two phenomena in tandem. That's interesting. Yeah. But also what I find interesting is the way you describe that there with the, with the energy that almost is a precursor to being able to explain tulpas and thought forms because if if those beings can manifest an energy that we as conscious beings can pick up on then perhaps we can affect the energies that we would then see as a conscious being i know it's a little bit of a leap but you know where i'm coming from that's an interesting it's not so much a, of a leap as as you think so this is another one that i cover um really interesting case so uh, Walter B. Gibson, back in the 1930s under the uh, pseudonym Maxwell Grant, had written uh, the famous shadow uh, pulp fiction stories that, act, that became the, the radio show later on. And his house that he had in Greenwich Village, New York, after he moved out, the new people that moved in uh, kept reporting seeing this shadowy hat-wearing entity throughout the house. And different paranormal investigators came in with household and some others. And uh, a lot of people are trying to say that, well, you know, maybe this is the, the spirit of some civil or not civil war, uh, revolutionary war soldier or something like that. And Gibson was like, the house was never haunted while I was in there. You know, this is what I think happened. And also uh, John Keel wrote the Mothman prophecies backed him up on this. In fact, he includes a story at the very beginning of the Mothman prophecies. It has nothing to do with the Mothman prophecies. Just an interesting story. Um, since Gibson was in that house so much, pouring all of his you know, blood, sweat, and tears into writing these stories, uh, he and Keel believed that uh, he manifested this thought form, Tulpa, uh, that we talk about that is actually his shadow character from his stories. Because you know, just the description, shadowy character hangs out in the, in the corners. A lot of people see it in the hallway, but it's wearing the hat and all this sort of thing, that it became this sentient, shadowy form in the house. Now, you've 
that though so a that is both fasc- that is fascinating and makes sense but b you have now just um delved into the realm of the hatman which is probably the most famous shadow being and appears to be ubiquitous amongst people who've never even met each other or don't even know that such a thing exists but they report this peculiar character and correct me if i'm wrong but it tends to have a shadow uh form of a fedora perhaps a long coat it's sensed as a male entity quite tall quite imposing and that appears around the world does that fit into the world of shadow beings or is that a different thing yeah i mean it's another type of uh form of shadow person uh the the fedora with or without the um uh, the trench coat is common is kind of the more commonly reported type of shadow phenomenon you also hear top hat and a cape um wide brim hat uh, another one that I've heard and just once, but uh, they report an archer style hat, like something out of Robin Hood, which is kind of interesting. So they'll, they'll take on all kinds of different uh, forms. And there's a lot of speculation as to what these things could could possibly be. Um, you know, they seem to be a little bit more nefarious in nature. Uh, people are very scared of these things. Some people believe that they are uh, energy vampires trying to strike fear into a person, feed off of that energy. Um, but you have, you know, some stories out there that they're, you know, possibly extraterrestrials or they're the men in black, this sort of thing. And there's a fascinating uh, story with, uh, with Albert K. Bender from the 1950s. He had founded the International Flying Saucer Bureau uh, back in 1952 during the big UFO flap. And a year later, even though this organization had blown up big within a year's time, went international right away. He had a newsletter that was getting sent out all the time. All of a sudden, he shut the whole thing down and wouldn't talk about it. Finally, in the early 1960s, he releases a book, finally talking about what had happened. Uh, and his thing was like, I had to stay tight-lipped until they went away. And what he described was he had uh, come home one day, went into his bedroom, and these three dark, shadowy figures wearing hats with glowing eyes, smelling like sulfur, materialized through his bedroom. Uh, through the bedroom wall and told him that he absolutely needed to stop his UFO research. So I, I read the story and it's like, that's fascinating, but that sounds like, you know, hat man, paranormal uh, type of story, something, you know, supernatural. Well, the way Bender tells the story is uh, he believes that these were extraterrestrials. They, I guess, had talked about having some sort of, uh, base in Antarctica, where they were harvesting resources from the water for a period of 15 years. And, um, you know, he wasn't allowed to talk about until they you know, left after their 15-year period of harvesting these resources. Other people listen to the story and they say, this is this is a men in black story. Uh, you know, because especially during the 1950s, you had those uh, you know, stories of the men in black scaring people off of UFO research and things like that. Uh, so it's almost like depending on what lens you're viewing the story through, you're going to have a different conclusion, uh, conclusion, paranormal, ET, men in black. So it's interesting. So the interpretation is partly cultural, do you think? Yeah, there's definitely a part of that. Yeah, because even when you look at um, 
you know, ancient cultures, you know, far back in time, these, these shadow entities have been with us forever. Uh, but when you look into the stories from around the world, there is a bit of a cultural context. So, uh, you know, some of these might be named a demon. Uh, you know, they might have some different physical features about them. There, there may be some legend and lore that goes back behind it. Uh, but we're all talking about the same thing here. We're all talking about these different shadow entities. Yeah, some of the ways that you were describing it earlier, um, it made me think of like how Arabic cultures might describe a jinn, a kind of um, smoke without fire, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so on a practical basis, when you first started to like throw yourself into this, how on earth do you first start doing the research? Where do you go and what do you do? Yeah, when I started doing full-blown paranormal investigations i was doing a lot of you know historic research into these houses and homes and things like that and trying to you know figure out um the reports that people have of the paranormal activity how might that fit into the history if at all you know you're going to try to force something into the history of a location to you know to to make to make it out to be um you know i don't know know, the, the ghost of you know great uncle al or whatever you know, if, if the story doesn't fit the person, it doesn't fit the person and uh, you're left with more questions. So, um, so there's, you know, a lot of, um, resources that you have to learn how to utilize, whether it's a newspaper archive, your you know local library, um, you know, talking to people, you know, interview. I've always found that, you know, interviewing elderly people is fascinating because they actually live through a lot of these historic experiences. Um, you know, places that are far older, you know, you're, probably going to be, uh, you know, visiting museums and, and, you know, talking to archaeologists or you know, professional historians or, you know, something like that. So there, there's a lot of resources out there and it's just a matter of learning how to use them. And, and, and from what I'm getting from your book, learning how to record them properly in a way that makes sense to other people, it, it, it evolves from being a campfire tale into a piece of um, historical fact, I guess, is the way I would say it. Yeah, I mean, I try. I mean, people have different writing styles and different uh, methods of taking notes and things like that. I try to be as detailed as I can. Um, you know, I'm not going to speak for anybody else, but because you know, we each have our own way of doing things. Of course. Now, I suppose this is something that we often speak about between ourselves and we ask everybody that comes on because it is genuinely the question that I guess in I was going to say bothers me I don't mean bothers me I mean enthralls me and when I'm not thinking about anything else I'm thinking about this knowing what you know from your research and the conclusions that you have drawn and those conclusions are not coming from a crazy place they're coming from research and experience you must feel like you look at the world in a different way to the guy who is serving you in a 7-Eleven. How does, how does that change the way that you function in the world? Because you've just described interacting or at least observing shadow creatures, shadow figures, which can be deceased people, they can be thought forms, they can be aliens – and I'm all I'm all in on that. I completely understand where you're coming from, but that isn't the way that most people think. Most people are worried about how much a loaf of bread costs, and when you go to bed at night and you think, "Oh, well, I I know in my heart 
there are alien beings in some form on this planet, that puts you in a different place. Uh, it does, but I also still worry about the you know the price of bread or you know right now a gallon of gasoline. Mm. Um, <laughs> I certainly have those worries too. But yeah, I probably look at the world a little bit differently than than some other people. And um, but you know there are a lot of people that that look at at the world the way I do too. You know, it's um, it's not just a select few. I think there's a lot more people out there than we really realize. Sure, there are people that are just kind of going through life obliviously and um, you know, they don't, they don't give a hoot whatsoever about any of this supernatural paranormal activity that people are talking about. But um, there are a lot of people that are very interested in it. And culturally we used to be more so long mm -hmm. ago. And that kind of got stamped out there for a long period of time. And it's really starting to come back into the fold. And for a long time, people were hesitant to talk about it because you're either deemed, you know, crazy or insane. You might find yourself in a straight jacket in a mental hospital somewhere. Um, you know, there was a negative stigma against that for a long, long time. I think what's been great about, you know, a, a lot of the television shows over the last 20 years since the, you know, I, I mentioned the internet earlier, how you know, I found that as an early source of being able to connect with people. Um, I think that's really helped in recent years to bring people together and realize, okay, I'm not alone. Other people are having these experiences and people are now more comfortable these days to come forward and start talking about it, which I think is a wonderful thing. Yeah, and I wanted to pick up on that because it's something we've talked about with a number of guests that we've had. And I think, you know, you're a perfect example of somebody I think who's is kind of plowing the same vein as we are of not over-sensationalizing it, not kind of, you know, oh my God, there's something behind me, ah, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. And I, and I, you talked about the, the benefits of the exposure on TV and the internet. Do you worry that in some ways it becomes over-sensationalized and that kind of loses some of the message? Well, you know, that's, that's a challenge with, uh, with network television because, um, you know, more drama sells. So, you know, when the television shows were first coming out, it was, you know, we, we think this place might be haunted and they were debunking a lot of things, but, you know, networks are like, well, you know, we need these places to be haunted. That's what people want to see. So fine. Now every place that they go to is haunted. And then it becomes every place has a demon. So, you know, they keep up in the ante, up in the ante, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, yeah, you know, even, you know, yesterday when I was being interviewed for a television show, they were trying to push the envelope with, with the interview to kind of get me to sensationalize a little bit more. And it's like, you know, that's not really what happened. You know, and that's, that's a challenge that you kind of deal with in, in these situations is that, you know, television networks want the high drama. Uh, but that's, you know, those cases, they do happen. Um, but they're kind of few and far between. Not every case is a demonic case. I mean, the entire time that I've been doing this, I've been, there's one demon case that I've been on. Um, and that was 10 years ago that, that did air on, uh, on animal plane on the haunted. My good friend, Carl Johnson, who's a demonologist was a part of that case. And I asked him when I interviewed him, um, like last year, the year before, and I asked him, okay, Carl, when, you know, this is what you do. You specialize in demons in these type of cases. You get called out all, all the time to investigate these, uh, you know, these more nefarious type of cases. You know, and they might be, you know, it might not be a demon. It might be like a you know, nasty human spirit. Because you have those, you know, people that were jerks in life will be 
jerks and death. Um, so I asked Carl, so when was your last actual case that you would deem demonic, that this was an actual demon? And he said, you know, Mike, it was actually that case years ago with you out in Edmond, Oklahoma. You know, and to, just to hear that from him, here's a guy that's called out, he's a specialist on these type of cases that are darker in nature. And it was 10 years ago that was his, that was his act, last actual demon case. Before, um, before we bring this to a close, I just want to ask, when, when you look at all the phenomena, when you look at um, like UFOs and ghosts and demons and stuff, I can't help feeling they're connected. All of the stuff in the in the press today about UFOs because of the presentation to Congress, insane, and a lots of it feels you know very similar to the stuff we're talking about. What? How do you work this in your brain? What's your mental model? You know, from some people that say there's heaven and hell, I probably go towards the simulation hypothesis. How do you feel about the world? How do you go to sleep at night? Do you feel like I'll reincarnate? Um, this is just a brief stopover. Like, where do you come from? How how has this informed you as a person? Well, um, you kind of mentioned it there uh, for a moment at the beginning of that when you used the word connected. Uh, it is all connected. In fact, I have a, a website called Connected Universe portal.com in which I talk about the connected universe. All this different type of phenomenon is, is connected. It's all, it's all a part of our universe. Um, you know, as far as reincarnation simulation. So our ancient religions already talk about a simulation. They use, they talk about it in different terms. They don't use the term simulation, but when um, you talk reincarnation, that you come from someplace else, you come down here for a little while, you learn some lessons you go off again to wherever that is and you recycle, um, that is basically a form of a simulation. Again, not using those terms, but that's when you think about like a computer game or something like that. That's essentially what you're doing. You're logging out, logging back in, experiencing something. You know, um, even, you know, Christianity talks about this. They talk about that, you know, we're down here preparing to go to another world. Um, so again, kind of adhering to the idea of a simulation, even though it doesn't use those terms. So yeah, I do believe in, in reincarnation. Um, you know, I, I believe that we're wrapping cycles within cycles. So we have a cycle of life that uh, we are interacting with here on earth and within the universe, but then the universe itself is cycling over and over again. You know, what was people you know want to know? So what was before the universe and what's going to come after the universe? And the, the answer is the universe <laughs> keeps cycling over and over, uh, which is which is fascinating. We're starting to we're starting to see more of this evidence come out, uh, you know, through our science. You know, the when you look deeper into uh, the experiments that they're doing down in Antarctica and seeing some of these scientific papers come out on uh, talking about parallel universes running in reverse time, um, that's where you start getting this bigger idea that, um, you know, that you know we are constantly renewing and recycling through all these different universes. It's really fascinating. I, I tend to agree with you. Whether it is a simulation or whether it is something that we just can't understand, our beings just keep going in one form or another. We're not, we never cease to exist. We don't have to worry that death is the end. It's just something different. There's another thing that's there. Yeah, it's just the beginning. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is a remarkably positive note in these very dark times, I think. And yeah. I think, you know, in these in these troubled times, people do tend to look probably with a more open mind towards these more esoteric things and perhaps they're not so esoteric when you listen to the evidence and um everything you've told us today i think just reinforces some of the thoughts i've had as well as given me new things to think about uh, it was fascinating yeah i think it's also really good that we're we're ending on a beginning that seems like a great uh, <laughs> that's true that's true so mike for all our listeners where can they find out about all of your vast sum of work because it is vast because i've been trying to consume it as much as possible before we had this conversation i can i for from, from my point of view i can thoroughly recommend ghost story and case files i've read that cover to cover loved it um but where else can people find your your pieces yeah, yeah. My uh, website is MikeRicksecker.com. Also, I mentioned the ConnectedUniversePortal.com. It's an online learning platform. A lot of free articles out there as well, but 30-day um, free trial. Come check out all the uh, different material that we have uh, in the weekly classes that, that I put up there. Uh, also, my docuseries, The Shadow Dimension. You can uh, see where that's streaming at, ShadowDimension.com. Those that have uh, access to 2B TV, it's running free on 2B TV, so go check it out. And, and what's your next project? You mentioned that you're doing, um, well, it sounds like quite a lot of TV at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I've had a, a lot of TV interviews so far this year. Just had one yesterday. Um, so I'm working on a uh, second season of Shadow Dimension. So that's going to be coming out. We have tours. People want to join us for tours. Uh, Ireland this summer, July 1st through the 9th. That might be a little short notice. But uh, February, we are going to be going back to Egypt. Uh, so Stargates of Ancient Egypt tour, where we are going to be looking at the evidence in Egypt of those ancient stargates. Fantastic. And where can people book those? Through your website? Yeah, you can find the links through the website. So just go to MikeRicksecker.com, click on tours, and you'll find the information. Oh, I'm very jealous of anyone going to Ireland with you this year. Ireland, beautiful country, with your knowledge. Wow. What a dream. That'd be amazing. It's going to be a fantastic time. Oh, Look, thank you for your time. We've we've run over a bit and um, we've uh, we've really chanced our arm, but really appreciate you being with us. And um, it's been wonderful, Mike Ricksecker. Thank you for joining the Quantum Mechanics. And thanks so much for having me. Quantum mechanics.